morning to you. What's that? Thank you. One downside to uh, wearing a brace for several months is it lifts up all your clothes. So, um, uh, a couple of uh, programming notes here. After the service, as a couple of people have mentioned already, um, we're going to have a newcomer's reception. That will be right in here in the uh, sanctuary. So if you are going to be part of that, and we'd invite you to be, um, we uh, invite you to stay here in the sanctuary. We'll, uh, we actually have uh, uh, lunch available, and we'll wait till everybody clears out, and then we'll let you go and grab some of that. Um, we also will have a prayer service for the children's ministry downstairs after the service, and... Uh, the lunch is also for people who are staying for the prayer service. If you're staying neither for the newcomer's reception or for the prayer service, keep your grubby hands off of the sandwiches. Uh, and uh, just to, uh, also want to let you know, next week we will be having a special guest star here at New Hope. Uh, Andy Bush, who is the senior rabbi of Baltimore Hebrew Congregation, will be joining us. And uh, he is a riot. If, if you have um, the children are all gone uh, cover Samuel's ears up. There's a very, very funny website uh, called Old Jews Telling Jokes. Has anybody seen this one? Uh, a number of them are, are not safe for work type jokes, but uh, apparently Andy is is related to the people who are involved with that website, and uh, he is uh, as funny as they are. So um, uh, I'm sure with me you look forward to that. So I had the privilege uh, this weekend of being up at my alma mater. I got a chance to speak to the InterVarsity group up there on Friday night, led a brief retreat uh, yesterday morning. Uh, when I came into the airport on Friday, uh, you know, got off the plane and, and went down to the rental car counter and, and uh, got eventually, after waiting about as long as I was on the airplane from here to Albany, uh, finally got put through to get my car. So I go into the, go into the garage and... and uh, as I'm approaching the car, uh, approaching the kiosk, this car pulls up. It's this black Impala. And I'm thinking, all right, this already is not good because I've got two hours to make a trip that takes in excess of an hour when there's no traffic, and it's quarter of six. And everybody looking in the rear view is going to think that I'm an unmarked cop, and uh, they're going to start driving the speed limit ahead of me the whole way across the mountain. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, the the woman sort of walks me around the car, and we check for damage and so forth. And, and then uh, she's about to hand me the key. She says, okay, so do you know how to work the Impala? Which is a very strange question, right? For one, you'd think they'd try to figure out whether somebody is capable of driving their car before they're about to give you the keys to it, right? Uh, but I said, what, like the gas is on the right and the brakes are on the left? <laughs> I don't know if, because I, I drive a Prius now, I'm in like some nas national database of people who are suspect that they can't actually drive a regular car. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I look, a car is a car. I mean, you know, you've got to figure out where the temperature controls are and you've got to reset the radio if the guy before you was a fan of country music or something. But a uh, car is a car, right? It basically kind of all work the same. And, and, and it reminded me, uh, as I was thinking about that, of our passage today, we have... In this portion of Leviticus, uh, a whole host of different regulations, different laws that God's providing his people. Uh, and really, today is, is uh, including chapter 18 through 20. Uh, if you remember the, the story, God has uh, redeemed his people out of Egypt. He has called them out. He has saved them, rescued them from the hand of their oppressors. They were in slavery for over 400 years. 
God has uh, rescued them out in dramatic fashion uh, and uh, inspired Cecil B. DeMille, of others, uh, among others, with the manner in which he did so. But he has now got his people out in the desert. He is about to bring them into the land. Actually, that was the original plan. Uh, due to some issues with the GPS uh, and sin, it took about 40 years longer than it was supposed to. But uh, right now they're in the desert and they are receiving the law. God is giving them the law. And he's giving them the law uh, because he's going to be giving them a land to live in. And he wants to tell them how they should live in the land. Right. So it's good to remember when you read this that God is providing not only... Uh, regulations for how he is to be worshipped. This isn't just about religion as we think about that. There's plenty of that. But this is also the legislation that you need to have a functioning nation state. Right? You're going to see that there, there are laws about what you do if somebody is accused of a crime, how you make sure that you ensure due process for somebody who has uh, been accused of, of doing something. Regulations having to do with, with just compensation uh, for people who... who uh, uh, damage the property of somebody else. Laws dealing with uh, basic things like public health, uh, among other things. And if you read some of the laws uh, of the contemporaries of the ancient Israelites, you'll find a lot of the same stuff in there. Because just like a, an Impala is just like most other cars, this land that God's bringing his people into, in a lot of ways, is just like other lands. I mean, human society has to work in certain ways. And there are a lot of things here that are just the way things need to be. Much of what is prohibited here is prohibited elsewhere. And some of them we may look at and we may think that they seem to be a, a little strict, but they're not necessarily more strict than other cultures had at the time. But what I found out in the morning, the problem was, of course, they walk you around the car at dusk in a dark garage, and then they want you to initial and, and promise that there's nothing damaged, and if there is, then you're going to pay for it. In the morning, I, I uh, noticed that this car has a cigarette burn in, in the uh, passenger seat. Obviously, somebody did not realize that one of the things you do when you drive a car is you flick your ashes out the window. Uh, and I also found a, a tin of snuff wedged next to the driver's seat. I, I, I think if I had looked at it, maybe I would have found the backing to a nicotine patch and somebody was really working the whole trifecta. Uh, but uh, but this, this car did have some damage to it, uh, and uh, I was able, I think, credibly when I came back with a car not smelling like cigarette smoke to tell the guy that I hadn't smoked in over 15 years and uh, this was somebody else's problem. Hopefully I won't be getting a bill from Enterprise. But this car had some damage, and the land that God is bringing his people into had some damage as well. He says in, in chapter 18, after going in exquisite detail into uh, the kinds of things that he does not want his people to do, he says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. This is chapter 18, verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin. There's a, a, a sense in which the people were living counter to the very fabric of the way the universe is supposed to work. Nothing necessarily special about that. What they reaped was the just and natural 
reward for their transgressions. Paul picks this theme up. We won't go into it, but Paul picks this theme up in, in Romans, in, in chapter 1. He's talking about all the things that people do. And he says, well, you know, what do you expect? If you eat that much bacon, you're going to get fat. Not like I know anything about that. This is just what happens. And he says, so even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin. And like the pumpkin on the cover of your bulletin, the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, God says, you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native born and the aliens living among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you. The land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out. Just as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements. Don't follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came. And don't defile yourselves with them. I am Yahweh, your God. Do not defile yourselves. I am Yahweh, your God. So Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the whole entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. It's just like the, the car wasn't the point of my trip. The car was just the way I got from point A to point B and back again. In a lot of ways, the land isn't the point of the exercise. And, and really, Torah, law, isn't the point of the exercise either. These are all means to the end of holiness. God is calling a people, and he's calling his people to be holy. And when we think about the word holy, we, you know, we sometimes think of the, you know, the saints with the halos and so forth. But it's important to remember that the, the root idea of holiness in the Hebrew word it has to do with being set apart. Holiness has to do with being set apart from what is ordinary taking what is profane and moving it into the category of the sacred, taking what is ordinary, making it extraordinary. The idea of holiness is bound up in a very fundamental sense with the idea of something being different from what is around it. God is calling a people to be different. And again, it kind of reminded me, I'm, I, I, I really, you know, going up to Going up to, to Western Massachusetts, it really brought me back. Um, brought me back about three weeks to when the weather was cold here, which is what it is up there, and the flowers hadn't come on the trees yet. Uh, but it reminded me when I was up there of of our honor code. Anybody go to a college that had an honor code? Right. The the, the premise for those of you who went to dishonorable institutions. The, the premise is <clears throat> that there's an expectation on the part of people in the community that they're going to uphold certain standards of honorable conduct. And usually it has to do specifically uh, with academic integrity, things like not plagiarizing, not cheating. Uh, at, at my school, every time we took an exam, we had to write at the end of it, I have neither given nor received unauthorized aid in this examination. You had to sign it every time. We weren't quite as hardcore. I remember when I went, was looking at schools, there's one school I looked at uh, that was so committed to this idea of the honor code that they would never let professors proctor exams. The professors had to let students take the exams on their own 
because the expectation was that the students would behave honorably and that they would not cheat on the exams. And so to reinforce that, they would not even let a professor supervise a whole room full of students taking an exam. The point of an honor code is not just so that you can have an honor code, not just so you can remember this sentence you had to write 20 years later. The idea is that you're trying to become a sort of people, that you're part of a community that says this is what it's like to be us. We're, we're, we're the kind of people who don't cheat on tests. We're the kind of people who don't take material without attribution. Because as you know, if you put a footnote then stealing becomes scholarship. We are not that kind of people. We are the kind of people who have a certain standard of honor. And in some ways, some of these regulations have to do with God saying to his people, this is the sort of people I want you to be. I want you to be my people. And there are some things that you're going to do that are the things that my people do. Some of these things are obvious, right? Some of these things are really obvious. Like don't degrade your daughter by making her a prostitute. Anybody want to disagree with that? Anybody think that's a bad idea? No, I think it's a good idea to degrade your daughter. But then you've got some things that are obscure. You know, this don't mate different kinds of animals, don't plant your field with two different kinds of seed. Don't wear clothing woven of two kinds of materials. It seems like just strange. Like why, why, why would that be important? One of the reasons that it may be important is that, is that God's people are, are called to separate themselves out from the practices of the nations around them. That there's, there's a sense of, of purity that God's people are expected to maintain. And he wants them to maintain that. And some of these practices may be simply a way of making sure that whatever the folks around them are doing, they're not doing that. Some of them make sense, but, but others are arbitrary, right? Like the brown M&Ms. Did you hear about this, the 1982 Van Halen writer? This is great. 1982, Van Halen, uh, on, their, uh, on their tour, they have, you know, every, every band, when they go on tour, they have a writer. They have, you know, specify what kind of food has to be in the dressing room, how much, what, uh, you know, what they need in terms of electrical supply, how many people they need to loan it in and out. And here, uh, in this, uh, this legendary writer, uh, well, you can see there's, a, there's an arrow, uh, is the requirement that there be not only potato chips with assorted dips, nuts, pretzels, but M&Ms with no brown ones. That the brown M&Ms had to be picked out of the bowl of M&Ms before it was served to Van Halen. Now this has been uh, has gone down in, in the annals of, of uh, rock lore as a classic example of bands getting too big for themselves or people with just strange uh, quirks that had to be satisfied. But actually, uh, and and I confess I did not read the work in question. I am uh, attributing this secondhand. David Lee Roth, in his biography, autobiography, uh, said that the whole point of this was not that they didn't like brown M and M's. The point was they needed to make sure that the people putting on their concerts took care of the details on important things like making sure that there was enough electrical power to the lighting, making sure that the doors were big enough to load in all their gear, making sure that the floor was going to handle their whole setup. Because if you remember, he you know, did all these weird acrobatics. And I think it, it, it was uh, 
Where's Joe when I need him? You know, I think it, it was uh, Alex Van Halen who had the drum set that flipped upside down during his solo. Um, it, over the years, they, they, uh, they did some damage to some concert halls because the promoters had not made sure that everything was in order as it needed to be for their show. So they realized, if look, if we tell them something silly like take all the brown M&Ms out, and if they don't take the brown M&Ms out, then we have reason to be concerned about what they may have also left out. So this simply became a way of making sure that they were doing the things that they needed to do for the concert to go on. I don't know. Maybe some of these regulations have something to do with that. Maybe this is a way of God reminding his people, look, I'm calling you to be separate. I'm calling you to be different. I'm calling you to be my people. And there are going to be some things that mark that out. Right now, our, our Jewish friends are counting the Omer, which is, I think, one of, one of my f- absolute favorite commandments is the counting of the Omer. Anybody remember what the counting of the Omer is? Right? Okay, so we just finished Pesach, Passover. And after Passover, we were going to read uh, later on in Torah, what you do is you count out uh, seven weeks, right? You count a week of weeks. You count seven weeks, and then you get to Shavuot, which is Pentecost, right? Shavuot is the, the Feast of Weeks because you've counted out seven weeks. So in the liturgy, in the, in the synagogues, during daily prayer, there is a prayer inserted for the counting of the Omer. And here's how the prayer goes. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, the King of the universe. That's kind of the way all the prayers start. Who has commanded us to count the Omer. And then you say, today's day 27. And then you move on. That's it. That's all you do. Right? I mean, you could have said, okay, well, okay, here's the end of Pentecost. You know, flip ahead seven weeks in the calendar, add a day to make 50, circle that date, and that'll be Shavuot. And when we get there, then we'll get there. But, but the rabbi said, no, it says you're supposed to count off seven weeks. You're supposed to count off these days. So we're going to count these days. So in the synagogue liturgy, every day right now between Pesach and Shavuot, they're counting the Omer. And there's a sense in which, it's, you know, you commanded us to count the Omer. Blessed are you. We're counting the Omer. Here we go. All right, moving on. See, God's calling a people. And he expects them to do as he says. I love the way Eugene Peterson does this. Peterson, by the way, is going to be here at St. Mary's in just a couple of weeks. There's a, a flyer on the information counter. But in his translation called the message he says here's how he puts the the last verse of of chapter 19 he says keep all my decrees and all my laws yes do them i am god seriously i'm I'm not just making this stuff up i actually want you to do this stuff because god's calling a people now the question that arises for us of course is what does this mean obviously we are not members of an ancient israelite nation state Right, So we look at some of these rules, and some of them seem to have to do with the conduct of national affairs or social policy or public policy in a nation state that we're not part of. And other requirements, like the ones that we hit in the first several chapters of Leviticus, have to do with worship being conducted in a place and in a manner that is not ours anymore. We are not worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem or before that in the tabernacle in the desert. We are not making sacrifices. We are not doing all the things 
that are prescribed in Torah in terms of ritual purity because that's not the paradigm that we're operating under. So the question is, how does, uh, how does this work for us? What, what, is this, what does this matter? Because unfortunately, what we don't find in the text in Leviticus is clearly marked tags for what is going to be of abiding importance, what is going to be true across all cultures, and what is going to be only for the nation of Israel in that time. Unfortunately, we don't have color-coded texts available to us. One way we can, I think, try to make sense of it is if we look at the way this gets transposed into the context of the New Testament, the first century. What we find in the first century, and this is the time when, uh, of course, uh, Jesus lived and died and rose again. This is the time when the New Testament authors were writing. What we find is that the, the Jewish people had developed some cultural boundary markers. The Jewish people living in the midst of the Roman Empire had developed some cultural boundary markers. What it meant to be Jewish involved primarily four things. First was kashrut, was maintaining the dietary laws uh, of of Judaism, that you would not eat pork, you would not eat shellfish, you would not uh, mix up uh, uh, meat and dairy, you would never dream of eating corned beef on white bread. Uh, these are, are regulations that have to do with setting yourselves apart. And, and, and it's interesting, this, this whole line that, uh, that we get over and over in Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. This, the, the first place you get this is in chapter 11 of Leviticus. Verse 4, I am Yahweh your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. Don't make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves about on the ground. God has just told his people, don't eat snakes. I am Yahweh who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. This is the first time this command is laid out like that, and it's laid out in the context of God issuing dietary restrictions. So the first cultural boundary marker has to do with diet. The second had to do with keeping uh, a certain calendar, maintaining the Sabbath once a week, observing certain festivals, and the more important ones, going to Jerusalem, if at all you could. So... uh, the, the first is kashrut. The second has to do with, with uh, calendar. The third had to do with sexual ethics. The Jewish people separated themselves from the pagans, the Romans around them, by maintaining a high standard of sexual integrity. They did not uh, tolerate uh, the uh, loose sexual uh, moral practices of the people around them. They upheld a traditional view of marriage. And then fourth, after keeping kosher, observing festivals and Sabbath, sexual ethics, the fourth was a rigorous rejection of idolatry, a firm commitment. This was probably the most theological of them. The firm commitment to the worship of the one true God, thoroughgoing monotheism, an absolute rejection of the notion that any of these gods that the Romans would worship or the other nations would worship, certainly not Caesar, could be treated as God. And when you look in the New Testament, and you look at the way these various cultural boundary markers are dealt with by the New Testament authors, I think a picture starts to emerge of which of these are of abiding significance and which of these apply in a more specific setting. Certainly, idolatry 
was not tolerated at all by the New Testament authors. I mean, the real challenge that a guy like Paul faced, Paul, of course, having been raised uh, as, as a, a Jew, and uh, he, in fact, was a, a young Jew in a hurry. He was a, uh, studied with the leading rabbi of his time, Gamaliel, uh, was a, a, a brilliant, brilliant uh, and, and passionately observant Hebrew follower of, of God. His challenge was understanding that this Jesus was to be worshipped. That worshipping God meant that he was also supposed to worship Jesus. In a lot of ways, Paul's letters involve him working out this theological conundrum that worshipping the one true God also means that you are worshipping the Son, Jesus Christ, and that you worship the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, but, but the, the, the doctrine is, is starting to, to poke out like one of Michelangelo's statues. As you look at the New Testament, especially the writings of Paul, well, idolatry is in no ways uh, tolerated. Sexual ethics, actually, if anything, the New Testament intensifies the restrictions that are placed in, in uh, the Old Testament. In Torah, you find a, not a, a, an encouragement of polygamy, but it, it is recognized as a practice that happens. Uh, so, for example, you read in Leviticus that um, you, know, you, you shouldn't uh, marry your wife's sister while you're still married to your wife. Right? This would, again, just seem like common sense. I can't imagine anybody getting up and thinking, yeah, I had a really good idea. This is, this is going to be, let, let's, let's set up some really healthy family dynamics. I'm going to marry my wife's sister. Uh, but but the, the, the understanding is that, uh, that you might, in fact, uh, take more than one wife. The kings did this in spades, and that was one of the problems, is that, uh, is that they got carried away with it. But Jesus, when he talks about the issue, he doesn't say a whole lot about sexual ethics, but he does say, look, I mean, at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female. He made man and he made woman, and he wants them to come together and be one flesh, and, and, and that was the whole point of the exercise. Jesus seems to reaffirm a, a more monogamous understanding of marriage, and uh, certainly in, in the New Testament, the, the kind of things that we find described as abominable uh, or as detestable in uh, the Old Testament are, are not at all encouraged or tolerated. As for festivals and keeping the Sabbath, the New Testament authors seem to be fairly ambivalent about them. They basically say, look, if, if that's how you roll, that's great. If you honor God by keeping the Sabbath, do that. If somebody else honors God by not keeping the Sabbath, that's fine too. The main thing is I don't want you people to be all up in each other's grill about whether you're keeping the Sabbath or not. Stop bothering each other. Stop sitting in judgment on each other by what you do about something that really could go one way or the other. And of course, as we see uh, in, in uh, the Gospels and in Acts, the dietary laws, the, the food laws, the question of uh, whether certain animals are unclean, that is abolished that is clearly left behind uh, so that uh, uh, with the one exception of the the uh, letter from the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15 saying that uh, that uh, the Gentile churches would do well to abstain from from uh, meat with blood still in it basically that that is abolished so this one cultural boundary marker of kashrut is is tossed out the boundary marker of keeping the festivals and Sabbath is taken to be entirely optional the boundary marker of sexual ethics is intensified, and 
the cultural boundary marker and the key theological idea of monotheism in the face of idolatry is, is absolutely held to. And so what, when we read in Leviticus about what happens when God's people fail to follow His law... Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them. This is chapter 20, verse 22. So that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you because they did all these things. I abhorred them. But I said to you, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Yahweh your God who has set you apart from the nations. This was a specific command given to a specific people at a specific point of time in reference to a specific piece of real estate. And if you read ahead in the story, you know that, in fact, God's people did fail to keep all of his decrees and laws, that they did, in fairly short order, begin living according to the customs of the nations surrounding them. And because they did these things, God abhorred them as he abhorred these other nations. And the land did, in fact, vomit them out. They went to exile. And even after they came back from exile, even after God restored them to the land after exile, it was never quite the same. Our situation is different. We are not a nation state. We are not a theocracy. And uh, notwithstanding what some people may tell you, there was never a point at which God entered into a covenant relationship with the United States of America the Founding Fathers, or the Puritans. Some of them thought that he did. But we are not there. Yet at the same time, we do have the command to be holy. Peter writes in his first letter, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And where is that written? Written in Leviticus. Jesus is not the answer. That's written in Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it wasn't with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, and implicitly your pagan forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. It's a different movement of the symphony, but it's still the same idea. And we remember that the point of God calling his people to be holy, we can never forget this. The point of God calling his people to be holy was not just so that they could live differently from everybody else. That was important. 
It wasn't just so that he could have his own little group doing their thing that he wanted them to do. The point of God calling his people to be holy, to be different from everybody else, to be living their lives dedicated to him, was not just for their own good, although it certainly was for their own good. The point was that God was, through Israel, seeking to reconcile the world to himself. This is what God was doing in response to human sin, in response to our brokenness, to the things that we did to mess up the good creation that God gave us. Because of sin, we became alienated from him. We became alienated from one another, from his creation, from our own consciences. And God, in order to bring people to himself, said, I will take this one nation and I will make this nation a great nation. Not just so they can be a great nation, but why? He said to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And God placed his people in, in, in a place where people from all over the world would go through on, all the, on the trade routes. That's one of the most contested pieces of real estate in human history, where Israel is. And, and one of the reasons is that it, everything goes through there. And he said, I want you to live the kind of lives that will make you a living billboard for me. I want to show the nations what it is to live well as my people. To draw them to me by the example that you set. Again, as we know, that experiment didn't work out so well. But the same impulse is there. when we look at what God is doing through His people, the church. God was in Christ, Paul says in Second Corinthians. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting people's sins against them. And because of that, Paul says, He has made us ambassadors. He has given us the responsibility of taking on that job of being billboards for God. Not, he doesn't just call us to live as He commands us to live for our own good, although it is for our own good. And it's not just so that we can have a special relationship with Him, although we do. We're called to do that because God has a bigger agenda in mind. God is about reconciling the entire world to himself. Somehow, in the mysterious course of his working that out, he commanded things like not wearing clothes made of two different fabrics woven together. And there's a lot about that that's puzzling. But if we can listen for the main themes, I think it starts to hold together and it starts to make more sense. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that passages like this are difficult for us. They're, they're difficult because the, the world that they refer to is just different from our own. And they're difficult because they force us to work through how we understand your word, to think about what it is for us to receive this word as inspired by you, as, as useful to us for all sorts of purposes. 
receive this as your word and therefore somehow authoritative in our lives. But there are all sorts of things in here that we find difficult even to understand how we would apply them. Pray that you would make us humble and patient hearers of your word. Pray that when we run across things that we find confusing, things we find offensive, you give us the grace to settle down, to open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds. Allow your spirit to teach us. Listen for your voice in your word and in the words of those who have been pondering its meaning. Give us the grace, Lord, to be humble, as Mary said. We pray that the result of that would be that we would grow in holiness, that we would increasingly be a people set apart. Lord, are living here in the world, but are not of the world, a people called by your name. We pray the result of that would be that our neighbors would be drawn to you. That they would come to know the saving love of our Lord Jesus Christ. That they would embrace their identity as people that you love dearly. And that you call to yourself. Pray that this would be to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.